y'all better give me some blankety blank dap on that blankety blank. Yes, there, is, been- <laughs> there was a lot of blankety blanks in his career. Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back. Today is another very special episode. We are continuing the Great Debate Series. And I think, personally, one of my all-time favorite debates in player comparison history between Kevin Garnett and Tim Duncan. And I could think of no one better to come in, an expert on all of these matters. Someone who I've been talking about this very issue with for, what, about a decade? Andre Snellings of ESPN, welcome. Thank you for having me. I am uh, pretty excited to be on here with you uh, in this great debate. I felt, uh, having been intimate with these players since they came into the league, that sounds so funny, doesn't it? I was intimate with these players. It, it really did, but I was going to let it slide. <laughs> no. um, but, you know, following their careers so closely and talking about them over the years, I felt, oh, I'm extremely, I'm extremely comfortable to just have this conversation, and yet I spent the better part of the last few days watching old games and rereading old things. So, very excited. Um, just a recap, if you're new to this series, the concept here is it's really about big ideas worth discussing among these players. So we're going to talk about key numerical trends, stats you may not know, things that happen with their teams, the stylistic trends of the players, really focusing on their sort of peak prime years. Um, In this case, for Garnett, I think we're talking 2000, let's say 2003 to 2008. He injures his leg in 2009 in Boston. And with Duncan, again, you could... You could talk for, you know, the length of their prime is so long. But with Duncan, I think we're going to hone in on a similar five or six year period, let's say 2002 to 2007. You you agree with that, Andre? Yeah, I like that. I mean, their their careers parallel so closely. Um, I mean, they're the exact same age. And yeah, we could have done those five years, I, I think, worked for their peaks. So uh, as as the listeners know, my preference is sort of to view these guys based on how much they help teams win titles. So I'm going to be partial in highlighting things that help playoff basketball, winning basketball, fitting with higher level players. Uh, Do you have any other criteria that you sort of look at when it comes to on-court play? That's that's a, a nice catchphrase. I mean, so essentially I always say that I look at impact, which I think translates to the same thing. I'm not really so interested in kind of what the, the box score or, or what the, the, the kind of pretty stats say. I'm, I'm, I want to see how much did this player help his team when he was on the court, which I think is the same way, the, the, another way of saying what you just said, how much does he help his team win? Yeah, two key principles to always keep in mind that we're trying to carry through uh, in this entire series. One is never judge a player in his worst or best situation. And oh boy, is that going to come up today? with these two guys. Um, so that's things like what kind of stats made them look better or worse. It could be box score stats. It could be some of the deeper stats that we're going to get into that are influenced by teammates, circumstance, coaching, what have you. Uh, we really want to try to think of counterfactuals and other situations there. The second huge key comparison uh, for player principles is comparing the player to himself. So understanding mm-hmm. what changed from season to season, or you know, in many cases it's very helpful to say, Take a peak season, take one of these heart of the career seasons that we're going to talk about and understand what changed a few years earlier or a few years later, because sometimes the stats 
go in the opposite direction of what actually happened with the guy or whatever. So that's a huge principle that we're going to try to stick to. Shall we jump in? Let's do it. Are you ready? Okay. So yeah. I, I, we, <laughs> Wait a minute, 80s rap. I can tone Loki. Let's uh, do it. Yeah, let's just do the whole intro that way. Um, you, we, you know, we talked about this uh, right before we started recording here. Yesterday I threw out a poll on Twitter asking about basketball IQ. Who has a higher basketball IQ, Tim Duncan or Kevin Garnett? Providing some specifics, things like awareness, anticipation, um, you know, specific t- components like that. The thing that made me think of this, by the way, was going back and just getting stuck watching their film. And then you like watch Duncan for a little bit and you go, mm-hmm, oh, so he's like doing rip through moves constantly in the post before anyone knew what that was. Yep. Right. And then you, and then I'm like, oh, wow, that's pretty impressive. And then you turn on KG and he's just doing every possession. He's got a trick. You know, if it's on defense, if it's on chip screens or sticking his hand in a passing lane when you're like, wait a second, why did he stick his hand in the passing lane there? Uh, just picking up deflections and steals like that. So that's what triggered it. But this Twitter poll, which I thought was an extremely challenging question, the results, 3,400 votes came in. 78% of people said Tim Duncan had an overall basketball IQ that was higher than Garnett. Uh, yeah. Andre, take it away. What are, you, what are your thoughts on this? So my thought, and I think I kind of mentioned to you, uh, mentioned it to you in, in one of our email exchanges, is that I think that no matter what measure you would put on that poll, there's a default mindset that Garnett and Duncan may have been similar, but Duncan was a little better. And I think that mindset translates to pretty much any discussions that you would have. So if you said, if you would have just said, "Who's the best power forward of all time?" you would have, you know, come out with a really high percentage for Duncan, a lower percentage for Garnett. If you said who was a better defender, I think the same thing would have happened. You know, like pretty much no matter what, I think in people's minds, Duncan is a little better and that translated through to the poll. As far as how I would answer the question, I really liked what you said a minute ago about how this was inspired by watching the Duncan rip through and how that was kind of ahead of its time. And I would, I feel like that with both of them. There was a, a article on that ran on ESPN last week, Jackie McMullen and Kurt Goldberry, and they were looking at post trends, post offense trends over time, and asking the question: because they're declining, is that an indication that the big man is less important and on his way out the door, at least on offense? And one of the reasons that they came up for why this is happening is that kind of the analytics revolution is 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 strategies and coaching and are are getting more intelligent is finding that post offense just throwing the ball into the big man and letting him create while it might create say a 50 percent scoring chance which was good if you look at it as just a field goal percentage it's not so good when you look at it in terms of team offensive efficiency and what can be done with with free throws and three pointers and things of that nature and so I bring all that up to say that that article decried that big men today don't look like, you know, Shaq and and Wilt and Kareem and the big men of yesterday. They're 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 looking different, and I would argue that right now they look more like Duncan and Garnett, um, and maybe more Garnett than Duncan. And that's an indication, as far as coming back to to the question, that they were both operating at a really high IQ ahead of their time, and that the rest of the league is just now catching up to them. 
Well, they also both, I mean, one of the interesting things about looking at this is they both played forever at a high level. Mm-hmm. They just kept going. Uh, we'll get to this later when we circle back around, but Duncan, of course, played at a high level while kind of changing his game a little bit and adapting in a different system and the Spurs were you know one of the progenitors of sort of this new spaced out movement uh they called it like Euro offenses coming in uh, earlier in the decade when it kind of took hold so Duncan was part of that Garnett of course was so effective as a defensive player even kind of as an old man right at the dawn of the league having this like super spacing boom in the last few years. So I think just those indicators alone are probably data points that we're talking about uh, ahead of their time players and guys who are incredibly smart out there on the court. I broke it down into the specific categories that I laid out. So I had awareness, I had feel slash anticipation or court mapping, and then I had a category for the little things. Um, for me on the little things, it was one of the things Garnett did all the time was he would set these little chip screens on plays for his guards, or he was one of the original guys to use the seal play when a guard would drive. So in other words, a guard would drive near him when he's on the post and he would just turn and completely clear out his man. Like he's sealing him for a post up. He did that regularly. And I think that's now something that's more taught around the league, but I didn't really see that, you know, 15 or 25 years ago as a regular act. act. Yeah, I would I would agree entirely with that. KG's career and, and Duncan's as well were littered with those kind of either smart plays or little things that don't show up unless you really look for them. Right. You mentioned the, 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 the KG chip screen. One thing that I would point out is how much of a coach on the court each player was, especially as their career went along. I remember there was an anecdote back in, you know, during the Celtics years where I believe it was Avery Johnson. Um, it was it was definitely a coach. I think it was Avery Johnson was pointing out that Garnett was calling out all of their offensive plays on defense <laughs> and, and telling his, you know, guys where to be. And so Garnett would be back in the middle and he'd say, okay, they're running elbow high. Baby, you're over here. Uh, Rondo, get left. And – and so little captain-type things like that on defense will never show up in any, any stat except for the fact that the Celtics' defense was crazy. Um, another right. little thing, the, the whole – and I don't, there, there's no way to tell if this is really a thing, but the whole a player shoots after the whistle and then KG would go up and block the shot because he didn't want them to see a shot go in and, and, and feel like they were getting hot. I see a lot of players doing that today that, that just continues – whether it's because it's really effective or it's just a, a little psychological thing, it's just a little thing. You know, the the, the game is full of them. And well, there's one their mind oh, their mind games were so different. You, oh yeah, you got me thinking about this, <laughs> right? Because Garnett would talk all kinds of weird smack. He oh, would yeah. he would do the little thing you just mentioned with the you know not being able to see as a shooter your shot go in after the whistle. But then with Duncan, you have all these reports of Duncan being like too nice for like it threw players off their axis because he was he was he'd be like hey man you gotta you gotta get you gotta get on the other side of me in the post so I don't get that entry pass (laughs) he would like Mm -hmm. he would like tell him these things as the game was unfolding and Steven Adams uh was recently on low post with Zach Lowe over on on your network and he was like telling him how Tim Duncan threw him off more than any other player and Zach says well (laughs) well what did he do 
And he was like, he was just too nice. Every situation was like, hey, how you doing, rookie? Are you adjusting to the league well? I hope you have a really good game tonight. And he's like, it just completely threw me off base. Yeah, yeah. They, they could not have been more polar opposites in that respect. So back to your point that I uh, interjected on, I'll let you finish what you were saying, but you had a uh, comment about Garnett calling out the plays. And one of the things I noticed in doing his profile for my all-time player series was there is a couple games that you could find online from the 2008 season early in the season where it was like around the holidays or something and the garden was quiet or Mm -hmm. a road game where teams didn't come in and you can hear all the stuff on court and he just his he tells his teammates you know there's just incredible sound that you could rarely get where the play is going on and they're, they're in the middle of a pick and roll and he'll just yell out like Rondo Wright baby scram or something like that you know mm-hmm. he's just calling out these high level reads and this is the kind of court mapping I actually think when I line them up I think Garnett was a little better Duncan played more in a phone booth and we'll talk about this when we talk about how they might translate to today's game but Duncan's Duncan's domain was around that the paint and he was just so good at kind of like swiveling back and forth knowing where to be using that incredible length whereas Garnett he wanted to roam all over the place he'd switch he'd come out and meet you Minnesota used to blitz pick and rolls high he would he would blitz the pick and roll and then be back under the rim I just don't even understand it he's like a teleportation device Um, And so in that sense, I always thought he had a slight advantage in things like that. But keep going. What do you think on this? Even back to when he was young in Minnesota, my best friend Jamal and I, when we were watching the game, we would laugh because I remember one time in particular, he was on the free throw line and he shot and it went in and none of his teammates came over to, you know, shake his hand. Right. And it was one of those where the microphone was close. And, you know, you had to be careful because there was no telling what was going to come out of his uh, his, his mouth. But it was something to the effect of, y'all better give me some blankety blank dap on that blankety blank. Yes, there, is, so then- <laughs> there was a lot of blankety blanks in his career. Yeah. And so you, if you watch that any old footage of him, you'll see at the line, if he takes a free throw, he daps the two guys that are on the lane, then he reaches his hands back and they dap him from the back. And so it was just like little things, but just constant teammate uh, reinforcement. I always thought that was creature of habit stuff with mm-hmm. him, you know, being a, being a, on the crazy side of that where he would do the chalk and slam his head against the thing and start <laughs> talking to himself. Like, you know, the basketball players are so habitual like that. Um, and I think it's just ingrained in the culture. I wore like the same armband for about 18 straight months after a good shooting yep. game once yeah so um where do you decide that look this is how it works out the people are going to want to know do you give an edge one way or the other on basketball iq if you had to vote in that poll where would you give the edge i would vote for garnett um i i tended to like the things that that we're discussing i felt that duncan in most things, and, and this has to be said up front in this comparison, in most things, the two of them were so close together and so much better than everyone else that me voting for one over the other doesn't say, you know, that's not, this guy's great, the other guy sucks. Like, I always felt like it was close. But if I had to differentiate, I would say that I felt that Duncan was one of the best coach players in NBA history with Greg Popovich's system, with the veterans that were there when he came in that he was able to kind of come into an an environment where talent-wise he developed into being the system, but that he was able to learn these are some things that you do and apply it. Whereas I felt like a lot of times with Garnett, 
he wasn't maybe as well of coached and that things were either unorthodox in how he was told to do it or that he just did things that seemed unorthodox at the time that now in hindsight like oh okay you know a, a seven footer that's not going to be in the post but instead is going to create you know sh- right. shoot these 18 footers at the time he was like vilified for that like I mean, you got to get in the paint yep. you know you're not a real big man but in today's you know with the analytics we're like oh no he was creating a spacing effect that really helped his offense in ways that the the posting up might not necessarily have done so if i had to give an edge to one or the other i would say i felt like garnett was doing a little more so let me hop in on that point that's a really interesting point because i think duncan he was always put in a steadying environment with veterans and the organization and david robinson they just always had that kind of roster whereas garnett was in a situation where they had extreme turmoil on the roster a lot of flux, a lot of injury. I mean, even when he was young, there was a lot of promise about, and this. If some people are going to never heard this name. They're going to be like, what is he talking about? Tom Gugliotta. Googs. Googs. Tom Gugliotta, they, you know, like potential all-star type of player, devastating injury. And then, of course, it was, they had Marbury, but Marbury was even younger, and they traded him away, and then more injuries, and all kinds of stuff changing everywhere in that organization from the top to the bottom. And the reason that I thought of this is, as you were talking through that, one of the things Garnett speaks to all the time is how steadying of a force Sam Mitchell was yeah. when he was young. Because they just didn't have many sort of veteran voices, that like anchoring force for a young player. And so instead you have a lot of uh, creativity, exploration, improvisation from a guy who was a typical in Garnett, you know, I always say he was the originator of this kind of like they called it the tall forward yeah. in the '90s. Uh, they didn't know what to do with the player archetype because he was so tall, but he played atypically. And I think actually that instinct, that basketball IQ, is something that he had going. If you can find, if you you know, if you're really hardcore, you can find games of him in high school on the on <laughs> yeah. the internet. And I was watching one of these once because that's what I do in my free time. And uh, I was I was watching one of these once and. You know, he's, he, he's seven feet tall playing in high school, so he's way taller than everyone. He still flashes to the mid post, not the low post, catches this pass in the mid post. And Andre, I'm telling you, in one motion, it took my breath away. I had to rewind the thing three times. Over the shoulder touch pass to a guard cutting in for a layup. This is, 17, yeah. this is a 17 year old kid playing like this. Yeah. And there's the famous Sports Illustrated anecdote about him famous like everyone's read it from 25 years ago um he was on he was a feature piece in sports illustrated because he was going to be uh, a high school selection before there were high school selections before it was a real thing and the writers of the sports illustrated piece i can't remember who wrote it but talks about how when he worked out for nba teams when they had him in the structured environment doing the drills and going around the cones i mean he was terrible he was mm-hmm. airballing shots and fumbling the ball, and they were just like, this kid's in high school. He's never going to make it. And then they ran a uh, full-court pickup, just completely dominated the entire game. KG has a really unique career arc and story. He's one of the few – so and I'm, you may have heard me use this anecdote before, but there's this thing that a friend of mine in college used called the 10-step test that said that if you saw somebody from a distance, he was using it for dating purposes. Like if you saw him from a distance, <laughs> then you take 10 steps and then, okay, now how do they look? No, I you haven't, I haven't heard this. Yeah, but keep going. 
This yeah. is what we're here for. This is the content right here. <laughs> it's the good stuff. You know, Roger Jackson, uh, shout out. But, you know, that, you know, Rod had this 10-step test that he would use. And I always say with Garnett, it, he's one of the few NBA superstars that the closer you get, the, the, the more you look into him, the better that he looks. Uh, exactly. Like, most, as you get closer, you can start seeing more flaws. With him, from a distance, I think his flaws have been magnified because people were trying to explain why his teams weren't winning. And so there are a lot of perceptions about what he was as a player, how he played, what he was good at, what he wasn't, that the more you look at it, the more it's like, well, no, actually, he was pretty good at that, too. Or the word I like to use is context, if you put it into context. And so you mentioned, you know, he came in on an expansion team that didn't really have veterans. You know, Sam Mitchell was like his his veteran guy, and he was kind of trying to learn the ropes. And then just the litany of things that happened as far as player personnel. You know, you, you mentioned Googs, the the interpersonal relationship between Garnett, Gugliata, and Marbury. Um, there were three guys that each looked like all-stars on the way up. The year that Googs makes his first all-star game, he – you know, ends up with that injury you talked about. Rumors about who couldn't stand who in the locker room. Googs gets traded away. People attribute it to those rumors. Then Marbury gets traded away among similar rumors. And then, yeah, all the injuries. The team loses draft picks. It was because, a mess. Yeah, you know, just all of this craziness. And it contributes to a career that didn't go the way you would think it should go from a team's success perspective based on how good of a player Garnett was. And so I really appreciate this podcast or, you know, like your top 40 uh, um, players in NBA history project because they give us the chance to really go in depth, put things into context and say, okay, how were things really? And so um, I appreciate that. Yeah, thank you. So let's dive in right on what you just said in terms of some of these like stylistic trends. I think one of the things that threw people that we've talked around but not about specifically is he took a lot of mid-range and long jumpers and he's the seven foot guy the number here i pulled uh, from 2003 to 2008 54 percent of his field goal attempts were outside of 10 feet Mm -hmm. and as a seven footer that was something that threw people a little bit he could go low post uh he played a lot of kind of mixed in low post and high post uh had like back to the basket moves over both shoulders when we get to his prime years here he could hit you with a fadeaway over his left shoulder a lot of footwork every once in a while threw in a hook shot but you know he had that game he also could face and drive and get by guys who just weren't as quick as him even though he was what's the saying six foot 13 (laughs) right he's enormous right (laughs) Um, so a lot of those spins a lot of that stuff and similarly 63 percent of his field goal percent is his field goals made in that time were assisted. And so you have like a lot of, okay, he's playing pick and pop. He's playing on other guys. He's got catch and shoot. Why doesn't he go under the basket more? And it was criticized. And yet I think as we'll get to later, not just with spacing, but I think he was playing a style that lends itself more to success with other good basketball players. Right. Um, And we talked about coaching a little bit earlier. This was in the Flip Saunders days. Flip, had an interesting offensive mind in that I think he was also good at setting up those situations. It's like, okay, if, if Garnett's going to be here, um, the defense is going to do this. That means the world, that, that, that Wally Zerbiak is going to be 
open over here and we're, we're going to set up this shot. The counterfactual or the, or the way that, that Flip's offense doesn't work for today's standards is that he was trying to set up high percentage mid-range shots. Right. And, and they, they shot more mid-range jumpers than anybody. They were able to have an efficient offense for the time, but in the post-hand check era, you know, and, and now we're seeing everyone spamming three-pointers, you just can't get that type of efficiency with a team that's not shooting threes. And so, you know, the things that Garnett would do, it, like you said, he had the, the fade going both directions. He would also really just kind of make that his office. Like th- there were three kind of main sets for the Timberwolves. They had elbow where he would essentially go to the elbow and post up there. They had, I don't know what it was called, but he would do the same thing at the free throw line or he would go to the box. And from all three locations, he would essentially be the point guard on the play from that point forward. You know, he wasn't bringing it up the court, but you, you mentioned tall forwards. I guess he was also kind of one of the first point power forwards. Well, the, yeah, there was the in the playoffs, they, they occasionally ran out of <laughs> guards who could handle the ball. So he would just bring it up and initiate. And I think it's a great call out for Flip who I have I have my reservations with as a defensive coach, but offensively he was very innovative and very willing to use Garnett as a high post initiator. That had a little more precedent in NBA history, but there's certainly a lot of that elbow stuff that you just alluded to. He was so tall he could pass over the top. So I thought he had great synergy with someone like Chauncey Billups where you mm-hmm. add another layer from the elbow so a lot of it was cuts back doors things everyone was doing at that time but Garnett could just fire over the top and hit them but when you add in like dribble handoffs that Chauncey Billups really enjoyed with Garnett then you get another okay here's a kind of another wrinkle or layer to this whole thing and to the larger issue here he that's not necessarily celebrated or obvious when you watch the game from that you know 10 feet away if we're gonna if we're going to use Rod's terms to, throughout the pod here. But, you know, when you look closer, you start to think that was one thing that jumped out to me when I was studying him a couple of years ago. It's like, man, he never really has the ball a lot setting things up in the sense that Duncan did. Duncan, Duncan stylistically was almost closer to Shaq. Like he would get to the block and he would root in and he would hold it and pound it. And he could, you know, hold and turn and face and set up his banker. Or maybe he would wait for a cutter or a double team. But it was much more of an old school style post game. Whereas Garnett, if he got the ball and nothing was going, he loved extra passes. He moved it along. You know, it was just, it was quick and move. He was like a stick and move kind of kind of boxer. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. Especially, you know, you, you mentioned the synergy that Garnett had with, with players like Chauncey Billups. And I think that kind of stick and move, um, be it as, as like a, a picker in the pick and roll or a pick and pop type game, the decision maker that, that sets up uh, teammates, it really worked well with guards that could shoot, with point guards, especially ball handlers that could shoot because they could play a bit of a two-man game. That was why Sam Cassell, uh, in a lot of ways, worked so perfectly next to Garnett. Um, they were able to create kind of a two-man game where either one of them would get a high-efficiency shot or the defense had to make a quick decision that they could then take advantage of to get another teammate a, a high-efficiency shot. And just kind of pivoting off of Garnett into Duncan, he was more in the traditional mold. So I, I feel like both he and Garnett were a bit of a hybrid or a new thing for the NBA, but that if, if you looked within that hybrid, Duncan was the more traditional big man. 
uh, I can anchor, uh, get in the post, um, and and really try to score as opposed to trying to set up teammates. Like like Duncan, the way just like Shaq and other great bigs, he could pass out of a double. But it was more of a, okay, a double's coming, I'm going to pass to the right. outlet guy, and that guy's going to run the play. Whereas a lot of times with Garnett, it was more the double's coming, I'm making the play that's creating the shot. So I think on Duncan, the thing that maybe got lost a little bit in the shuffle because he played right when Shaq was at his peak is he was a really powerful player. Like He was a physical, big power guy, over 250 pounds, um, very, like a lot of low center of gravity moving toward the basket his offensive rebounding was a huge part of his game he got yeah. a, he got a lot from his own misses he got a lot off of other people's misses and he could just root under the hoop uh, as i said he liked to patrol the paint on both ends of the court and part of that offensive rebounding was just i've got position i'm deep there's a shot that's about to go up i am just owning this space and when the miss comes off I have arms for days. I have Michael Phelps swimming arms here. You know, like like he did this constantly, a, well above average as an offensive rebounder, grabbing a few a game. And that was actually one of the things that struck me looking back at available synergy data or even when I hand track their games. It's like his pu- the purity of the efficiency of his post scoring isn't off the charts. It's that like many powerful big men, he's getting others, you know, he's getting easy bunnies off of putbacks. Exactly. Yeah, Duncan, he was the epitome of what would have been considered an all-world center. As you pointed out with it being the Shaq era, Shaq is what people thought of as a center in that time. He's just huge and he's exploding and he's dunking and, you know, guys are bouncing off of him. Whereas Duncan was more of like a not exactly stylistically, but similar to like an Akeem Olajuwon or a body type of a, a Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, you know, a guy that that would have been a excellent, pure center. It was old school. Yeah, yeah. he had an old school game. You know, he had all of the, the drop steps. He had the moves and the counter moves on the box. Like, he was excellent at that. And what kind of made him new age as well was that he could do all of those things and, and get easy points that way. But he also could, you know, step out to 12 feet and, and, and knock down that face-up banker. You know, he, he would, even though his free throw percentage didn't always reflect it, he was a, a reasonable jump shooter out to at least the, the, the early mid-range. And those that, that made defenses and defenders have to figure out how to address that. It was like, okay, we've got a guy who's as good on the box as Akeem, but he can also – face up and and make things happen in ways that weren't quite as traditional. And so I felt like on offense, that was kind of part and parcel of of Duncan's excellence. I'm actually surprised as we talk through this that you give him so much credit for being sort of a a newer – I see him now as such a traditional – like with the 60s he would fit, the 70s he would fit, the 80s. It was all that kind of get on the block. You know, I have it here, 70% of his shots in his prime were within 10 feet of the basket – he wasn't a great free throw shooter. He had a banker, a face up, a hook, little power moves. He liked that spin move. You know, I see him, I think, more as a traditional center. I certainly view him as a center historically, although it's it's a game of semantics. It doesn't really matter, except people like to say, this guy's the best power forward and this guy's the best small forward. But I think functionally, he played center. He, 40-something percent of his field goals 
were 49. Here it is. 49% of his field goals were assisted. So he had a decent amount of isolation just from catching it and kind of pounding it on the block. And to add it all off, wasn't a great free throw shooter. You know, Garnett later in his career gets 84, 85, 86% from the line. I think another indicator of his shooting prowess. And Duncan was always like 60s, low 70s, you know, kind of struggled from that perspective. No, I mean, that's an excellent point. Again, I think I look at it more on the continuum of Duncan versus other centers, right? Because he would have been a center. Like, had any team that didn't have David Robinson draft him, Duncan would have been their center, and that would have been his position. But I think you alluded to in in the Top 40 project that early in his career, Duncan played at least sometimes small forward. Oh, my God. It was was nuts. (laughs) And it's not, you know, I mean, obviously it was next to, like, Will Perdue and David Robinson. So it wasn't – he wasn't an ideal small forward, whereas Garnett was actually a a small forward in a seven-foot body early in his career. Duncan was a center – that had enough perimeter skills that he could survive in those types of situations. But he could switch and actually defend smaller players um, in ways that you didn't normally see centers do. He did have his his little – I mean, you know, I guess the the Akeems and, and David Robinsons also had a, a face-up game out to the mid-range as well. But Duncan, his, his, his game was not – exactly what I think of as an old school center or, or an old school power forward, right? You know, he he came in the generation right after the Charles Oakleys and, you know, back when power forwards used to just be a six nine thick guy that could just bang and grab the rebound. Um, Duncan always had a little more perimeter versatility to his game, not on a Garnett level, but enough so that I still think of him as kind of one of the progenitors for the the, the type of evolution we've seen in the big man. What happens if he doesn't play next to David Robinson, who himself is a high post kind of face up guy, will make the extra pass? It's in that sense, I think it was a very fortuitous fit, not just because of all the cultural reasons we've talked about, but it there was no redundancy. David Robinson didn't want to go down six feet on the block and play with his back to the basket most of the time. And so I don't think they really got in each other's way, even when they were on the court early on. Obviously, Robinson retires after 03. Definitely, yeah. They were the, as far as I know, the first and maybe only quote-unquote Twin Towers duo to actually win a championship. You know, you had Akeem and Ralph Sampson who got close, right? They got to the finals. But I think the reason the Spurs were able to have so so much success in a non-traditional lineup built around two traditional big men is that they had they both had some versatility to their game that they could go high low on both offense and defense and really kind of share the wealth so to speak and early in his career when when Robinson was there it's interesting it was interesting watching it real time but it's interesting to go back and look at at the different impact stats because Duncan was early on I think thought of as the leader of the team and Robinson kind of took more of a secondary role, but the impact stats really hammer the, the, for that first championship team for the late nineties versions of of that iteration, that Robinson was probably still the higher impact player, especially on defense that he was just crushing things on defense. And whereas Duncan might be scoring a little more, his offensive impact wasn't enough to counter what, what what David was doing on defense. And so 
I think maybe if if Robinson had never existed, yeah, I think that that Duncan would have been a center from day one, and that maybe he wouldn't have had to learn those elements of his game that were a little more perimeter based, um, or maybe he wouldn't have had to emphasize them as much. So in the long run, maybe this made him a, a better, more versatile player. Well, it's certainly, I mean, from the time he came into the league in '98 to 2002, he certainly evolved as a passer and a playmaker. And a lot of that is natural, right? But it's learning to receive the double team, understanding what the angles and options are passing out of the double team. Um, I think one of the things that you're alluding to that he's just a little more than an old school big is he could handle the ball a little bit. You know, he could he could he was comfortable out on the perimeter taking a dribble or two and making a decision. It wasn't as fluid as Garnett, but that growth, that experience from 98 when he came into the league at 22 to 2002, to me is the reason why we're focusing on this 2002 to 2007 period as his best years, because he actually ramps up his passing and his playmaking. It's not great. I think uh, I've seen people say that, you know, they think I undersold him in his all-time player profile. That may very well be true because I think in these specific years the growth pays off 2002 2003 2004 and he's better at making he's not great but he's better at making those reads and certainly his playmaking statistics and the metrics I have on those kinds of things reflect a growth on that front as a playmaker I would say that he went from early on being a center that if anything was just passing out of doubles to by that early mid 2000s range being a player that could initiate from that position whereas Garnett may have been initiating from jump and then as he developed in that same time range he went from excellent to we may have never seen this before from a a, a big man uh, as far as passing goes and so they were both on a continuum both on a improvement uh, arc but yeah, they started from different places and, and therefore ended in different places. So let's talk, uh, jump to some of those impact metrics that you alluded to. In terms of some of the adjusted plus minus studies, I think one of the interesting things, you just mentioned this with Robinson, is Garnett and Duncan almost have inverted trends in terms of defense. So when Duncan mm-hmm. comes in, when Duncan comes in, Robinson is still kind of seen as the better defender from the perspective of the plus minus you know goings <laughs> comings and goings it's like okay when Robinson's on, when Robinson's on the court maybe he's impacting defense a little bit more but there's clearly a synergy in my opinion between these twin towers they were just so difficult to score on I remember a 98 Bulls game where it was Duncan's rookie season and the first time they played Chicago and I had watched like every Bulls game during that second three-peat run and just Jordan was, you know, he would get by his man and it would be like going into a wall. Yeah. So they certainly had that synergy. Then here's what happens in the impact metrics. Duncan does really, really, really well in defensive adjusted plus minus in like 01, 02, 03, 04. And then he kind of, you know, he's like all-time level seasons. And then he kind of comes down into more of like a realistic, oh, okay, he's like plus two or plus three points better on defense or something and Garnett when he's in Minnesota during these years 2000 2001 the years we're alluding to here he is like plus two plus three and then he goes to Boston and he just absolutely explodes I I think there's a few things at play um 
especially with regards to Garnett's defense and as his career arc progressed. For one, he went from being, for want of a better way to put it, a lone wolf in Minnesota. I, I, see, was, I see what you did there. Yeah, yeah, you see what I did there. Yeah, he um, where he kind of had to do everything on every side of the ball. You know, offense, defense, special teams. I think he was a kicker, the punter. Like everything, <laughs> <laughs> everything in Minnesota went through Garnett. And then he gets to Boston, and he doesn't have to be that anymore. He can still be one of the the main offensive cogs, but now he's got Paul Pierce and Ray Allen and a system that allows him to put more energy elsewhere. So maybe that plays a, a part in the uptick in his defense. Another thing is the coaching, right? We talked about Flip Saunders and his offensive uh, you know, coaching skills, where his defense wasn't his forte, and the defense a lot of times seemed to be KG go stop him. Um, whereas then he goes to to Boston and he's playing for, for Thibodeau and Thibodeau has this excellent defensive scheme and it's like, okay, I know how to use you. And so that's, there's kind of a second element. And then the third element is that we saw the, the, what we call the rule change, the, the whole no hand checking thing. That was a rule before it just wasn't enforced. So they started enforcing it 2005 and after, well, as we've seen, that's kind of changed the entire way that the NBA has played. And an argument can be made that it de-emphasizes the traditional post defender and emphasizes a, a big, mobile, long help defender that can really get around and get out to the perimeter, out to the three-point line and beyond. It, it really makes that the ideal as far as the best type of defense. And so you put those three things together and – I think that maybe kind of explains why we saw Garnett reach those kind of off the charts defensive um, numbers once he got to Boston. Yeah, I think I think you're nailing it with those points because to me, and I'm really interested in your take. When I watched the film, I would say maybe 2003 is probably his defensive peak, because whatever he gains in the ensuing years from a little extra bulk. He, he's slowing down, you know, he has that unbelievable motor, which he still has at like 35 years old. But mm -hmm. those early 2000 seasons, he can just be all over the place. He can guard basically any position at any point on the court. And he's still got this, I think I just call it like that T-cell reaction, right? <laughs> like there's a threat and he's on it. And I sometimes don't understand how he's on it so quickly. But I think because of all the other things that go on, with defense, you know, Irvin Johnson at times played as a quote unquote rim protector uh, <laughs> on all. You know, and then the perimeter guys that they had, like Troy Hudson, who, to your point about the two man game, could actually have some success picking and popping and dancing and handing off around Garnett, but was an absolute sieve on defense. Yeah. And, and so you're kind of stuck with this thing where it's like, okay, this guy's, everyone thought he was an all-world defender. He comes very close. I think he was, you may know it off the top of your head, he was like second and third in one of the Defensive Player of the Year votings when he was younger. Um, yeah. Can't remember the season. But he definitely has that reputation. Yeah, and he definitely has that reputation. And yet you see the inversion in the metrics, I think, because of what you outlined. But I also, I mean, do you buy that? Do you think he was a higher capacity defender when he was younger? It's. I'm getting to be a, a man of a certain age now, and <laughs> I, I, I think <laughs> like all men, uh, you know, or, or let's say athletes, as as their career progresses, there's kind of like two arcs that intersect between kind of your physical prowess and then 
your knowing the game prowess and and where they cross is kind of where you tend to feel like your peak is and how long they overlap is kind of the length of that peak. So I do think early in his career, Garnett was kind of unfair physically, like on defense, you, you made the analogy of, of how, how he would be out beyond the three point line and you would just blink and he would be at the rim. I, I kind of c- compare it to the way that Giannis is on offense now. Like he was just so long that he could take two steps right. and go from one three point line to the opposite rim, you know? And I, Garnett, and I, and I think sorry. jumping in on that, I think that is one of those things that at 10 feet away, you don't really notice. But when you zoom in, because there isn't an aesthetic to covering yeah. that much ground with two or three strides. Yeah. He's just there. And of course, you're not even you're not you're watching the basketball. Usually, you're watching the dribbler and break his man down. And so, at a distance, you don't process it. But it it mm-hmm. stops me in my tracks when I watch the film because I'm like, wait a second, <laughs> wait a second. He hard blitzed the pick and roll ball handler 28 feet away. Yeah. And they swung it around, and he took three steps, and he's at the rim with a two hand vertical contest. Yeah. It doesn't even make sense. It doesn't, and it is interesting because. You know, we talk, uh, we've alluded to a few times Flip Saunders. In 2002, the 2001 2002 season, the NBA made, got rid of their old illegal defense rule and they, they had started allowing for zone defense. And Flip, being the innovator he is on offense, tried that on defense as well because he started trying to run these zones. And I think part of the reason he had to try, well, he wanted to do those zones is because Minnesota did not have good defenders. You mentioned Hudson. They didn't have any good perimeter defenders. They didn't have any average perimeter defenders. Like in in that time era, you had kind of Troy Hudson or Terrell Brandon while he was having knee problems as the point guard. You had Anthony Peeler as the shooting guard who was like a, a, you know, get hot 6'3 shooting guard, but he wasn't a strong defender, especially then. Um, you had Wally Zerbiak at small forward. He was really poor defensively. And so generally the opposing teams could get what they want on the perimeter. And so Flip said, hey, I've got Garnett. I want to take him and make him the help defender everywhere. And so Flip would run this zone where Garnett was at the top. When the point guard dribbled up the court, Garnett would meet him, like defending, coming past half court. When the when the, the point guard passed to the wing, Garnett followed it to the wing to try to trap with, with someone, you know, coming up from baseline. And then if the ball went to the paint, obviously he, he had to be the back line at the paint. And it was really a ridiculous scheme. Like, that's not something that you can ask a human to do. But he was good enough at it, and he was, you know, he was spam- built like a cheat code. Right, he was spamming the <laughs> unlimited motor. He's yeah. like, just run around under the entire possession, please. Exactly. And then get the rebound, you know, and, and so you look at and in, in those years, you know, he's up at the league lead and rebounds and then eventually he starts winning rebounding crowns. It was just kind of an absurd thing. And so to your point, I think that those are things that could only be asked of someone that's in their early mid 20s. Like Celtics Garnett could not have tried to play that role. However, I, I, it's hard to not say that 2008 was a peak defensive season because I feel like he still had enough left on his fastball that he was at the high end of what could athletically be expected of someone that was that big. But then he was in a smarter system, a system that used him, didn't just say run around with your head cut off, but actually have some goals. And so I remember at the time in in 08, when, you know, kind of when the case was being made that he should be the defensive player of the year, 
it's because someone was pointing out was like, you know, he doesn't have a whole lot of rebounds this year. You know, he's not a league leader. He's not blocking a lot of shots. He's not getting a lot of steals. But someone pointed out that if you in, in the scouting, I don't know if it was synergy, but like there was scouting data that essentially he was rotating so quickly that people weren't shooting. And so it wasn't translating to a block shot because, you know, he was there so fast they knew he was going to get to it. But it was just disrupting offenses. And when people did try to shoot against him, it was some absurd, like they were in like the 30s um, as far as field goal percentage. And as you point out in his top 40, he was always a really low foul guy. So it was like you put those things together. Wow. I mean, that was a really impressive defensive resume. Now, had the Celtics then come along in 2003, 2004, maybe he, you know, he probably could have done it then too. But actually seeing it on the court, it's like, wow, it's hard to look away from that as a potential defensive peak. He was the first guy in that, that 2008, 2009, that, that whole run. He was the first guy that really made me think about the concept of deterrence. And yeah. I think we even talked about it at one point in a in a historical project, but it's like it's a tricky thing statistically because there are no shots being taken against him. Those opportunities never unfold. Even in the help, you know, that help side rotation where he would come, Thibodeau had the thing set up and they would pre-rotate and he was just all over coming from the weak side. Well, if he's coming from the weak side, you don't hit the roll man anymore. Mm-hmm. You don't even make the pass. Yeah, no, I was just taking your exact point and kind of amplifying on it. Um, I believe it was Goldberry's group. Someone about five or six years ago at Sloan, um, at the Sloan Analytics Conference, had a paper, and it was for offensive players breaking down decision-making. And it was saying, and it essentially looked, it used scouting data, and it looked to see where every player was on the court and when a person had the ball, what the percentage likelihood was that a given player that he could pass it to would score. And the person who had the best decision-making score was the one who was creating the highest percentage looks for his teammates based on those metrics. It was like Garnett was taking away those, essentially. It it was like his rotations were taking, well, this should be the high percentage shot, but we can't take it. So we end up kicking it out to a much lower percentage shot further into the shot clock. And, yeah, you you can't – there's no individual stat you could look at that says, oh, okay – that was a Kevin Garnett effect, unless you look at something global like a, a plus minus or unless you do uh, uh, in-depth scouting the way that, that, that you, know, you do with your methods. Those are the only ways to see something like that. And so unless you take those 10 steps, you'll never realize kind of the impact he was having. When are you releasing the 10-step method as a book? Is that, <laughs> is that this fall? I think we have come up with the title. We, we, we have come up with the title of my first sports book. Um, you mentioned Giannis. Giannis, so just to just to get back to some of these numbers, just to put this in perspective, we are talking about all-time level players. The play-by-play era starts in 1997, so we've got all these plus-minus and a, hybrid stats and things like that. If we look at Jacob Goldstein's PIPM, Player Impact Plus-Minus, which controls for shooting luck, it combi- takes plus-minus data and box score data. Uh, Giannis right now is plus 8.9. First in the lead league comfortably, and he is plus five point three on offense. That is almost identical to Garnett in two thousand three and two thousand four, and those are top ten seasons of all time. Duncan's best seasons are more like top thirty. He's a he's a little behind that in the regular season. In, in the comparisons, initially, all of the thoughts were that Duncan is doing something that Garnett isn't, and that's why Duncan's teams are always contenders, and Garnett's teams were in the first round of the playoffs in that. And so they would say, okay, well, 
Garnett's got pretty numbers, especially when the purse started coming up and Garnett led the NBA in a couple of times. Well, Garnett's got pretty numbers, but they're empty numbers. You know, he's not really impacting the game. If there was a stat that could tell us uh, players' impact, <laughs> it would show that, that Duncan is just doing these things that Garnett isn't. And so, you know, fast forward 10, 15 years, and now we have a growing body of those impact stats, and it shows that kind of the opposite, that, you know, Garnett was actually doing more, having more impact on the game than people realized. And as I was watching him, I would be trying to point out to people like he's doing these things, like he's doing this heavy lifting and it's not really translating to something that people can see. So I appreciate that that now we have kind of an approach that could compare Giannis today to Garnett in 03 and really kind of point out that like, yeah, in 03, the Timberwolves won 51 games. They had no business winning 51 games. They won 51 games because Garnett was doing some all-history things. And no, they didn't win the title. 03, Duncan Spurs won the title. And Duncan was bananas himself. But it just has to be um, – it, it's good to see that there are ways to kind of quantify – beyond just looking at who won the ring in a given year. So let's talk about those playoffs. Playoffs? Uh, playoffs? Playoffs. Let's talk about those <laughs> playoffs because if we look at the impact metrics, and Duncan is no slouch, he is also an all-timer in the last 20-plus years, right behind Garnett in a lot of these impact metrics we've talked about that incorporate plus-minus in the regular season. The defensive stuff, they're super close. I told you they have different peaks um, overall. Garnett's got two top 10 seasons. Garnett uh, Duncan's got two top 30 seasons. But then we get in the playoffs, and things mm-hmm. change a little bit in the playoffs. So even that 2003 Timberwolves team that you mentioned, that team with Wally Zerbiak when they were healthy, yeah, an incredible plus five regular season offense. So whatever league average was in 2003, like 105, 106 points per possession or something, they were up at like 111 when he played, which was really impressive to me. But they get in the playoffs, and Minnesota never really has a good playoff offense in any of those years. It's small samples, but even when you look at the multiple-year runs, they can never differentiate on offense in the playoffs. It's always kind of average. And the defense is decent because, you know, they never had great regular season defense as well. The Spurs and Duncan everything gets a little bit better in the playoffs. So they almost switch roles. It's like if we look at some of these impact metrics in a second, you'll see that Duncan passes, they, they flip. Duncan passes them a little bit in the playoffs. So that is one of my favorite topics to talk about. Um, I don't know if you well, know good. that. good. That's why we're here. You, you really queued it up? <laughs> um, I did. Because it, it, it comes, <laughs> right, you, you have met me once or twice. Um, it, it, it comes back to context a lot of times for me. Duncan does his scoring volume and efficiency from regular season to playoffs tends to either be similar or to go up a little bit to your point. Whereas Garnett's volume was similar, but his efficiency dropped maybe two or 3%. And in the playoffs, Garnett used 21.3 shot possessions and Duncan used 21.4 in the playoffs. And Garnett averaged 22.3 points per game and Duncan averaged twenty three point six. See, so, I don't. I don't think most people realize that their volume, because uh, Garnett Garnett was criticized. One of the narratives was that he would shrink, and he wouldn't shoot as much. But right there, I don't think people realize that their volume was really comparable, even in the yeah. playoffs. 
Yeah, in the yeah, yeah, these numbers are all playoffs, and and their volume was very com- comparable as scorers. And then if you add, you know, say assists right. and turnovers to it, right. Duncan was averaging three point six assists versus three point one turnovers. Garnett twelve point, I mean, I'm sorry, four point five assists versus two point nine turnovers. So what it came down to it was their offensive efficiency by those metrics were almost exactly the same in total in the playoffs. Like there wasn't a well, Duncan was a little bit better. Why did Garnett come down? They were really almost the exact same globally by that approach. Let's look at who they're playing against. And so because Garnett, we, we talked about him doing heavy lifting on teams that weren't as good in the regular season, that meant that he was lifting them to 50 wins, 51 wins, 48 wins, which meant that in the West, and this was a stacked, you know, like most of the last 20 years, it was a stacked West, he was normally coming in at the seventh, eighth seed. The Timberwolves coming at the seventh and eighth seed. So they were always playing these really good teams in the playoffs. You know, I mean, if you look at the Timberwolves playoff opponents from 97 to like 04, I think like some absurd number of teams that featured two players that either had already won or would win an MVP award playing at an all NBA season, like just all the combos. And so what would happen, he would get in the playoffs and they would be facing these excellent teams. Some of them, like those Twin Tower Spurs who who they faced twice, were monster defensively. What happened is Garnett in those situations, yeah, his scoring efficiency would come down a little bit because of his, because of what he was facing. And so I went through and I looked at, okay, Garnett and Duncan in the playoffs, both times, like times when they're in similar situations. And again, their scoring efficiency, just like in the regular season, goes back to lockstep. But Duncan against Garnett in those two years averaged 20.7 points on 51% true shooting. Duncan against everyone else during those same playoffs averaged 25 points a game on 57% true shooting percentage. So if you just look at Duncan as a whole on those playoffs, you're like, well, his efficiency is better than Garnett. But if you look at them when they're in similar circumstances, they were the same. And, and, and so, again, it's that if you look closer, put things in context, there wasn't a, a difference to explain away. It was outside of just the context and circumstances were different. So we have synergy post-up data. I alluded to this earlier. From 2005 to 2012, just in front of me right here. Um, yeah, you just happen to have it. I, I do. I keep it. It's like the schedule you used to carry around for your favorite team. I just keep it in my wallet all the time. Um, no, I don't think there's synergy data that's available before 2005. So 2005, Garnett, 1.01 points per post-up. Duncan, 0.9 points per post-up. 2006 is the same. 2007, Garnett's up to 1.06. Duncan, 0.95. Long story short, Duncan has more volume. He posts up anywhere between like, hold on, let me do some quick math, 50 to 100% more. There's one season where he's about double. Garnett is more efficient on his post-up possessions, just from the scoring perspective, in six of those eight years. These guys were really similar in makeup. High Mm -hmm. defensive value players, good offensive players with good to great skills in different areas and limitations in other areas. And there is an inherent psychological predisposition or bias to think like, well, wait a second. I remember all those highlights of Tim Duncan banking in shots against the Knicks and winning finals MVPs and left and right. And meanwhile, KG's missing fadeaways. They really weren't that different as scorers. 
even yeah. in the postseason. Now, with all that said, here's what I'm going to argue. I do buy the idea that Duncan's strengths as a scorer play better in the postseason. Specifically, Garnett's free throws go down in the playoffs. He's around an eight free throw attempt per 100 guy in the regular season. During our prime period we're looking at here today, he's around seven. Duncan goes the other way. Duncan's like 11 in the regular season. He goes over 12. Garnett's, you could almost explain most of Garnett's little efficiency dip where he's like, you know, 23 to 24 points per 75 in the regular season with plus three or 4% efficiency. So if league average is 53%, he's at 57. And then in the playoffs, it goes down to like 24-0 or 24-1. Duncan kind of goes the other way. Duncan can get up to like 25 plus six in the playoffs, whereas they're very much closer in the regular season. So I do buy the idea that as an isolation score, meaning you want to go to them and feed them, and they're going to help you with like mid-level offense. Because remember, Duncan never plays all this period we're talking about. Duncan doesn't play on great offenses. These are defensive juggernauts. Mm-hmm. And so he's getting that Allen Iverson boost of like that Jason Kidd boost of it's very hard to measure defense. So if I see a star on the team, I'm going to be like, I must be doing incredible offensive things. So what say you, Andre, to this argument that in those circumstances Duncan is indeed a better playoff scorer to kind of run stuff through not by a large margin but Mm. I would give him the edge there and in fact a number of the uh, you know impact metrics I alluded to flip in these years where now you know uh, Duncan's Duncan has the record the all-time record for playoff PIPM in a three-year run from 2001 to 2003 and Garnett's best season is like top 20 not top five Right. So I would say there's uh, there's a few different responses I would have. One is one I, I mentioned a little earlier, that those are looking at playoffs as a whole. They're not looking at times when circumstances were similar. And that when circumstances were similar, Duncan's and Garnett's volume and efficiency were very similar. Whereas Duncan got to, he was the opposite. Instead of coming in at like the seventh, eighth seed and facing the best, he was coming in a lot of times as the one or two seed and facing the lower caliber team. Just, just to be clear, just to be clear, all the numbers I cited were adjusted for opponent. So it, mm-hmm. is, a, it is a linear adjustment. It doesn't, I don't want to invalidate anything you're saying based on just mm-hmm. a linear adjustment, but they are adjusted for opponent defensive quality. Right. But so the point that I was, was making earlier, though, is I, I think that that's an excellent adjustment to make for global statistics. But I think that when we're talking one-on-one, especially in this type of environment where you can really get in-depth, you don't have to rely on global. You can actually look at specific, their specific cases and say, okay, you know, what was the situation here? And you can go beyond, okay, 103 versus 107 defense and look at, okay, Duncan in 02, I think, no, it was 01, one of those years when he faced the Lakers and David Robinson was hurt and all of a sudden everything went through him. He had great volume. He scored almost 30 points a game in that series, but it was on 51% true shooting. Like that was really low for him, true shooting percentage, even though those Lakers weren't an outstanding defensive team. That's not something that can be caught, you know, outside of context, I guess is my point. So, and when you really look at the situations where, in my opinion, they were similar kind of lone 
um, stars that were really outmanned by opposing teams, their volumes and efficiency were, again, really similar. So I don't tend to buy – well, that plus the fact that the ratio of times that that was true for Garnett, like pretty much all of his playoffs in Minnesota, that was true. Okay, let's talk about Duncan from 2001 to 2003. Yeah. That's – I mean, I don't – I don't. like I said, I don't think it's fair to characterize that as his lone star – heavy lifting stretch per se. But mm-hmm. interestingly enough, that's where he has by far the best box score metrics. It's mm-hmm. also where he has by far, he basically sets the record for playoff, our playoff hybrid stats that include plus minus. So even in PIPM, which is trying to adjust for shooting luck and three-point shooting and things like that, massive numbers. And then he kind of tails down in that family of metrics below Garnett for the remaining years. So my question is, A, does that influence sort of your perception of floor raising at all? And B, maybe more germane to the exercise here, do you think Tim Duncan changed in any material way in those years? And if not, what does that say about those numbers outside of noise? Is there something that, you know, the team, the relationship between the numbers and the team construction, in other words? No, let me say no. It does not change my perception because I was aware, you know, of that that time era. So I'll bring up uh, some doodling I did. I've, I've never taken it to the point of publication, um, like a, a lot of the things you've talked about. But I doodle this, a lot. With, this whole podcast is doodling. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, this is the place. Let's let's hear it. Yep. So I doodled a lot with postseason um, plus minus numbers. And you mentioned Duncan from '01 to '03. Yes, his playoffs, and this is these will just be raw. These aren't things like PIPM. They're raw, on-off, plus-minus numbers. Um, Duncan's plus 27.4 uh, on-off playoff plus-minus over right. those three seasons crazy. is arguably the best peak that we've seen in this measure. And if we look at these, like so I kind of did that. I went through and looked at peak years or groups of years for – pretty much any player you would consider to be a great player um, going back to 2000. Um, and actually, even back to 97, once NBA.com came on and I could get to that data. And if you look at those groups of years, we had Duncan at plus 27.4 from 01 to 03. We had LeBron at plus 20.4 from 07 to 10. And then he had another peak of plus 25.7 for 2016 and 2017 playoffs. Shaq from 2000 to 2004 was at like plus 20 and and he had you know multiple seasons of of plus 30 uh, uh for those individual seasons there's one other player in this last you know 20 years of NBA that has a a, a peak profile a multi-year playoff on off plus minus profile in the 20s and it's Kevin Garnett and so yes I do believe that Duncan in 0103 was he was peaking you know what was different for him those years versus other years i think it was a combo of that was the best that he ever was and i think that also was a year where the teams were such that they needed his offense in ways that they wouldn't before and after that before that david robinson was there after that you saw manu and parker you know begin to rise but from oh from like that that oh one to oh three era they had excellent defenses, you know, excellent defensive players, excellent, you know, defensive scheme, and, and obviously peaking all history-level player in Duncan that they built around. So it was like overall the team 
didn't have the offense. He was doing heavy lifting on offense. But if you factor in defense as well, it wasn't a floor raising effort, in my opinion. It was taking a, you know, average level team and making it a contender, sure. which was, you know, mega heavy lifting. But I say all that to say that to me, that supports the case that despite what, you know, a couple of percents of, of scoring efficiency, I think that's noise. I don't think that that's real. I think it's it's contextual. I think it's based on circumstance, but that it also isn't what tells you somebody is successful, that scoring efficiency is a good thing, but it's one element of many that make up an excellent player. And so when you look at this type of catch-all approach that says, okay, you know, we're not going to figure out how initially. We're just going to look at who was having this kind of impact. I think the fact that we see Garnett have that in the playoffs, even compared to Duncan at his best, that he was right there with him, um, to me solidifies the case that, yeah, Duncan was an excellent player, but he wasn't a better playoff performer. It was just he was in different circumstances. So one of the reasons I asked this, and and we'll segue into the other question that I asked, um, circle back to that here. Duncan, in the ensuing years, if we agree that he doesn't really change that much as a player, then, you know, how do you interpret how do you interpret that data? Is it noise? Is it something about team fit? Does it matter? You know, one of the principles here is don't judge in best situation, don't judge in worst situation, and I feel that way sometimes more about the numbers than anything else. Where it's like he has this huge spike and he has all this shine, this glossy glow from that championship run in two thousand three. But the thing that happens as their offense gets better and as other players come in, and in fact, Duncan goes from being the you know the leader and sort of carrying the load and heavy lifting to behind Parker to ultimately slightly behind Parker and Ginobili. They have a, a true sort of three-man attack. As that's happening, Duncan scales down and the team's offense gets much better. When Garnett goes to Boston, he basically is at the same level. So from so my sort of take on that has always been Garnett was never going to ramp up. He was never going to have the capacity to keep his efficiency at 28 or 30 points per game. Duncan can ramp up a little bit better maybe, but you don't get a great offense there. And so then we start to get into fit and scalability. I think, again, the way you phrase the question is important. Like, because you, you, when you say ramp, you know, Duncan could ramp up in the postseason, but then you follow that up based on like efficiency and, and volume and efficiency. It's, a, it's, and, it's volume and efficiency and, you know, running more offense through you where right. you're pre- right. Like, so that's the concept. And I think, right. and I think just to clarify, it's, I think it plugs directly into the idea of how they scale that Garnett was still the leading playoff scorer on the 2008 championship Celtics. But he basically has like the same scoring numbers. He's still playing the same style that he played in Minnesota basically every season. Yeah, I mean, so and I think maybe we're we're saying the same thing. Um, one of my bosses used to say, um, "You violently, we're violently agreeing, agreeing." You know, it's like we're we're not arguing. But to me, what that says is that for Garnett, scoring volume and efficiency wasn't the goal. That wasn't what he was trying to ramp up. You know, and I, I question and, and some of the, the, the things I was saying before are questioning the notion that scoring volume and efficiency for an individual is necessarily the thing that you need to ramp up to be an excellent playoff performer. 
And so what I would say is that if Garnett playing in a similar level with a similar efficiency um, as a scorer is able to maintain his impact, but on a much better team, right? That tells me that, A, what he was doing before when his efficiency was low, it wasn't, you know, it, it was still a good thing. It, you know, the, the plus-minus numbers bear it out, but the fact that he could do that on now a championship-level team and the plus-minus numbers stay the same, that, to me, is an indication that it wasn't scoring efficiency that was ever in question. It was just what he's producing as a whole. And whereas for Duncan, I would say in that 01 to 03 window, again, where the team really needed him to, you know, on offense, but that was his peak. So he was better than he was in later years, but that that wasn't always what showed up in the plus minus footprint. What he, what changed for him was that the, the rest of the team got better, uh, specifically Manu, who was a monster for one that skews on off plus minus because Manu a lot of times was coming off the bench. And so when Duncan may have been going through the bench, the team stayed excellent because Manu was keeping them there. Let me shift it to this. Uh, let me, let mm-hmm. me change the turf slightly on the same thing we're talking about here. If I asked you, what were your biggest concerns about these guys as players? Right. And I'll let you answer in a second. But for me, it would be Garnett's inability to dial up that scoring. And I think that that does provide you extra value. Whether you need it to be a great player is irrelevant because I think one of the things I'm couching this whole conversation in is that, hey, these guys were actually pretty close as scorers. Mm -hmm. So to make the argument that one is clearly way better than the other based on scoring, I think is falling into a trap. Mm-hmm. But there is, I mean, look at Dirk, look at Kobe, look at many, LeBron, Michael Jordan, look at many of the highest level performing playoff offenses that consistently mm-hmm. create separation regardless of the defense that they play. That is an extra gear. And I personally, and I think you're in agreement with me on this, I think if Garnett had that gear, he'd basically be the greatest basketball player of all time. But but my, my assessment here is that that's the thing that's missing with him, and that can be potential you know folly or a potential sort of wall that you hit if you don't have uh, the right team construction at times. You want another guy who can score well. I'll pause there because that's actually reminding me of another thing I wanted to talk about. So They were two, probably the two players I had the least concerns about. For Garnett, I think the biggest concern I had for him was that. What, well, what's the biggest weakness? Maybe is that an easier way to weakness. is that an yeah. easier way to phrase it? Yeah, um, you, you are correct that the the biggest weakness of his game has to be that that he wasn't someone that that you know was going to come out and score forty. Um, I've questioned on here whether that was a true weakness, but at the same time, if you're looking at the parts of his game, that's clearly the weakest part is his ability to generate volume scoring, high efficiency shots, either going to the rim or drawing fouls. That was never his forte. So I would say that's the weakness of his game. I think we're, I think we're violently agreeing then. Yeah. But <laughs> so, but, but so for, I, the, do you the have only one place for where we're not agreeing is, is it a weakness or not? Like, I think it's the 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 the, the part of his game that, that, that I think to use your terms isn't Mount Rushmore level. But if you're Mount Rushmore level at all of the other aspects of the game, and we really are seeing more and more that big man post scoring, especially, is not conducive 
to scaling up your team? Like, okay, yeah, that's the question. Like you mentioned scaling. Are we trying to scale up the team or are we trying to scale up the individual the team. offense? The team. And if we're trying to scale up the team, I would argue you could probably build a better offense around Garnett than you could around Duncan for both the regular and the postseason. It's just, you know, the better offense might not have him as the one that's putting up the, the, the scoring numbers, but I think the unit would be better because of his other strengths. And so that's the only question is, is ISO scoring from Garnett, which is still strong, you know, is, is that really a weakness if he's not, if he doesn't have that 35 point on 60% uh, field goal percentage, if that's not something that he would normally do? That's essentially my same concern or, or sort of the weakness with Duncan, I think, is if you have to build a high level offense, I think he loses more of the things that he does that are valuable on offense. Yeah. Meaning, um, and this and this segues into, and we should talk about it before we wrap up, like the way the game is played today, because there's, I think there's a pretty direct connection between the things I'm about to talk about theoretically and what's actually happened to big men. I think a weakness that I have, a concern that I have watching Duncan is he had trouble containing quicker guards on the perimeters when on the perimeters <laughs> let me try that again he had trouble containing <laughs> the internet yes on the internet uh he had trouble containing quicker guards on the perimeter in pick and roll situations when he was stretched out there so occasionally i mentioned back in the day teams would trap or blitz the pick and roll more if he went hard at it uh they could turn the corner on him and his feet he just he didn't have great feet he didn't have great lateral movement his his comfort zone was just sitting within like a 12-foot uh, radius of the hoop. And I think his wingspan is about 12 feet. <laughs> it's like a condor. <laughs> um, so like, I don't know if that translates as well today. I think that on defense, you're talking more about using him like a traditional drop, pick, and roll guy. Obviously, he played the end of his career in this era, but I thought there were weaknesses and in, in, in situations that you know, even as an old man where he had strengths and can hold on, you could clearly see the lack of sort of lateral stuff there. Um, on offense, back to what we were talking about a second ago, I think he did so much pounding the ball or rooting deep in the post, a lot of those possessions are going to go away. And mm. when those possessions go away, he's got he's losing an area where in the old days on certain teams he could impart more value relative to an average player. And right. now he's got to do different stuff. Even the offensive rebounding, the, he's always going to be probably a very good offensive rebounder. But the way he offensive rebounded, it helped that they played in a phone booth. It helped that he was down there and all he had to do was take three steps to get in the right position and he could anchor himself in the paint. And oh, by the way, if you don't think they call three seconds now, you should go back and watch some early 2000s <laughs> basketball. It's unbelievable. Everyone just sits in the paint the entire possession. Um, so I think he loses that stuff, and then as a as a passer, extra passer, outside shooter, he can't space as well. Garnett, on the other hand, and actually I'm going to pause and let you jump in, because I think Garnett, on the other hand, I, you could make an argument for that he is like the prototypical modern player, and if he had come along 10 or 15 years later, we might view him, I mean, he might just be viewed, like take Giannis and then keep going. When you asked about, or when you mentioned Duncan's, the things that concern you, I can agree that those were elements that he could have been stronger. And I think I feel similarly, though, to with Garnett, that especially for him, maybe it's more era specific. But for his era, I don't know 
do those count as weaknesses? Because you, you mentioned that like, okay, um, going out to the perimeter on defense as far as like the pick and roll defense. I think Duncan, to me, and you've done more scouting, but to me, I would say you could only say that was a weakness for him compared to Garnett. Like, I, I think that he was like 99th percentile. He just wasn't as good as KG. Yet, right. You know, it wasn't, it and, wasn't a weakness back then per se. It just was a, it was a very small thing that I don't even think I thought about until looping back in now with the way the game is played today. Exactly. And so it, it comes back to the, the question of what does a player need to do to be good? So when, when, when Duncan was playing the things that you mentioned as potential weaknesses, they're, he didn't need to be able to excel at them, right? So he was able to make his impact doing the things that he was good at. And yes, there were things that he wasn't good at, but he didn't have to be able to do them to play at the top level. When we start talking about scaling, especially up into today, then yes, I think the things that Garnett was good at on offense, the the spacing, if he was in today's era, um, I think he obviously would have taken that step back and shot threes as opposed to you know coming up with Flip and who, who really liked the mid-range shot. Um, so I think Garnett is, is, you know, would be one of the better stretch bigs in the league. He would be the best, you know, battling Jokic with, for the best um, offensive um, initiator from the top of the key for a big man. You know, I, I think he all of the things he was good at would translate perfectly to this era, whereas Duncan's, I don't think it translates as well. I would say that Garnett, when they played, was playing a style of play that was more conducive to building a high-efficiency offense and we're just learning it now, the next generation. Which is, um, which is the thing he was criticized for when, yeah, he, when he came in the yeah. league. So let me make the argument now, because I've alluded to it before, that Kevin Garnett is not only one of the most scalable players ever, but that he would thrive in today's era based on everything you just said. So he was very good in transition. Let's start with that. But he never had an up-tempo point guard. He would just grab the ball and put his head down and run down the court. And this gets back to that basketball IQ stuff, find little spots and things like that. And when you could hit him, you'd get a dunk or a layup or a foul in transition. But you watch the film and he didn't. He never played with a great passer. He never yeah. played with a passer who could use his lob gravity and his rim gravity and him as a role man. Never never could really get a great two-man game like Troy Hudson and, and young Chauncey Billups and old Sam Cassell were the pinnacle of his two-man games. So mm-hmm. so I think all of these things, the way we play today, not only is that something that makes him more scalable because you put him next to better talent and he's synergizing and finishing more than... He didn't have a lot of great finishing opportunities in Minnesota. Yeah. But today, the way we use big men, to your point, is imagine him in pick and roll, dual threat to roll to the rim, great lob gravity, um, popping as well to the perimeter... And on the topic of three-point shooting, Garnett briefly got intrigued by three-point shooting. I thought he was going to go all the way there starting in 1999. And for a four-year period, he took – I hope you're sitting down, Andre. He took a whopping 277 (laughs) three-pointers over a four-year period and shot 33% on them. This was not something they really practiced. Yeah. But statistically speaking, and I've talked about this before, when you take a guy – in terms of the mechanics and the and the the you know the the neuro neurology of shooting and everything, and you have a guy like Brooke Lopez, 
who's a low, high 70s, low 80s percent free throw shooter. And he takes a lot of mid to long twos. And then you say, can you be a three-point shooter? There's going to be a translation most of the time based on those indicators and the long two-point percentage out to your three-point percentage. Brooke, in the five years before he started shooting threes, was a 43% shooter on long twos. Mm -hmm. Kevin Garnett, from 2003 to 2008, shot just under 47% on long twos. One of the great... So just to put that in perspective, Dirk Nowitzki, in his best five years, was 48 to 49% on long twos. Yeah. And this is not to say that Garnett would be over 40% from downtown, but as a guy who got his free throw shooting into the mid-80s with that type of long two-point shooting, the fact that he, without really practicing them in an era when you weren't supposed to shoot him, shot 33% as a youngster, I think a reasonable floor as a popping three-point shooter it's got to be 35%. Yeah. And I yeah, think the that, ceiling's much higher. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. Um, what you just pointed out about not ever kind of being in a finishing position, I always thought that was one of the tragedies of his time in Boston. Like, it was excellent for his career. He won a championship, and then he kind of established himself as the best defensive player, arguably, of his generation. But his second year, so they won the championship in 08. In 09, for the first half of the year – the Celtics started using him like that. That's the only time I ever saw in his career where they were using him as a finisher. Um, Rondo was in season three or four by that point, so he was starting to become, you know, kind of the best version of what he was going to be. And they started running these pick and rolls where instead of KG popping back for the jumper, I mean, he would still do that, but he would sometimes roll to the rim and Rondo would hit him with an alley-oop. I've never seen stats for it, but I would bet that his rate of alley-oops in the first what, 45, 50 games of the 2008-9 season was higher than at any point in his career. And this was when he was, what, 34 years old, 35? Like, he was he was getting towards the end of, of – uh, he was really past the end of his prime at that point. Yeah, I think 09 was his 33. I think he was 30, 32 season in 08 and 33 in 09, I think. Okay. Something yeah. like that. Maybe a year That makes off. sense. Yeah. That makes sense. And so – you know, but I guess it was like year fourteen, maybe in in the league, because um, it came out, you know, you know, in age nineteen. But but anyway, the point was that was the closest we got to see to him doing what you were describing, um, being able to just operate as a finisher, um, almost the Amari Stoudemire role. And it also speaks to the the notion of that that postseason field goal percentage thing, where it's like, okay, if he's in a position where he's playing with John Stockton or Steve Nash as opposed to Troy Hudson and Chauncey Billups, would he have been able to get more high efficiency finishing looks even within the offense um, that, that might have helped that that volume those volume and efficiency numbers? Well, I think that's the point of scaling. I think that's mm-hmm. the concept of saying, in Duncan's case, when more guys come on board, the volume goes down, but the efficiency doesn't necessarily go up. In mm-hmm. Garnett's case, if you brought certain high-level players on board, the volume may go down, it may stay the same, but the only thing that's going to happen is the efficiency is going to keep going up because you keep mm-hmm. replacing those looks. Then in terms of, then you add in the passing, you know, Garnett, the ball never stuck with him, quick decision-making, the versatility of the passing and the playmaking. And then if you go to the modern game and you can say, well, he had a spacing element that was helpful 15 years ago, 10 years ago, but it was just long two-point spacing. Now you get mm-hmm. now you get the double you know the double bang for your buck where you get the long spacing in addition to the fact that he 
probably would have been a pretty nice weapon from three that defenses would have had to contend with. So all that is to say, um, you're definitely, you're going with Duncan, right? Big time. <laughs> you know, um, I, I take Duncan in most circumstances. I, I, I'm unpopular at parties because I take him over Kobe. I take him over most of his generation. But yeah, no, I, I, of the between Garnett and Duncan, I'm going with KG. So for me, I think it comes down to there are certain team constructions that I would prefer Duncan. And I think mm-hmm. I think as you get teammates that can shoot and pass, um, obviously it's nicer to have uh, defensive, you know, guys that can actually play defense. Like the two, I realized this preparing for this podcast. Mm-hmm. Ke- Kevin Garnett played in three postseasons in two- yeah. 2004, 2008, and 2010. Those are the only three postseasons he played in in that six-year period, seven seasons. Mm-hmm. And in yeah. those in those three postseasons, they made the conference finals, lost to the Lakers. Basically, at that point, had no. <laughs> No business with an NBA team being in the conference finals. In 2010, they lost in Game 7 to the Celtics in the finals, post-injury season. And in 2008, they won the title with a team that statistically in the regular season was more dominant than any team in a decade. Yeah. That's, that's, that's a pretty good run. Yeah. So I think that's kind of where I land. I think there are a handful of teams I prefer Duncan, and then... The better and better teams, I think I prefer Garnett. I can I can support that. You know, um, I'm the only place I'm I'm not sure of what I would want my team to look like where I would prefer Duncan. Um, I know we've talked a lot about the the postseason scoring, and you you believe that the Duncan was able to scale up there in a way that Garnett didn't. I'm not sure I agree with that, but what what I hate that we didn't see we got to see KG as a lone wolf. And then in Boston, we got to see what would happen if he played with other offensive players and could scale up his defense. What we never got to see with Garnett was what if he had a defensive caliber team oh as my. good as those Celtics. Oh, my gosh. Where he got to scale up his offense. Oh, my I gosh. I feel like we saw that with Duncan. one to 3 we saw that with Duncan. We didn't see that with Garnett. I believe he would have scaled up his offense the way that he did his defense in Boston. But we'll never actually know. I, I, I don't even know about the offensive thought I just realized that what if Kevin Garnett played the prime of his athletic years next to David Robinson and Bruce Bowen with Greg Popovich as his coach yeah I almost fell out of my little (laughs) office chair here yeah Um, yeah so so today I assume you think Garnett would 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 be amplified in the modern game and I personally think Duncan would still be great but maybe a little less Especially the fact that I think we agree that his, you know, his offense wasn't at that next level anyway. He's not Dirk and Kobe on offense. Right. I think that would have been exposed more, so to speak. Like a guy who has offensive skills, who's a good offensive player, but no one's going around the league saying like, you want to build an offense through Tim Duncan. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think that if Duncan was playing in today's era, he would have had to develop skills that he didn't have to develop during his time period. Um, I think he would have had to work more on his perimeter shot, which might have helped his free throws a bit as well. Um, but he would have to at least be able to knock down a corner three, I think, in today's NBA. Um, offensively, maybe Joel Embiid at less volume is maybe his upside. I, I'm not sure. Um, I think he would still be a defensive player of the year caliber defensive player and that he would still be 
a player that that could ramp up to potential MVP caliber, but that yes, he he would have had to show things that he didn't have to show in his actual career. Whereas with Garnett, he was actually doing those things in his career anyway. They would just be more beneficial now or more recognized as the way to do things now. And so yes, I think he would fit better in today's era. Who do you think would be a better defensive player today between the two with I I guess maybe I'm oversimplifying, but I guess Garnett closer to Draymond Green in style and Duncan closer to Rudy Gobert in style. Yeah, I mean, I think those are good comparison analogies because I think I was thinking of Gobert when I was talking about Duncan in today's era and what he would be on defense, but Gobert is a little bit longer and so yes, and, and yes. maybe not quite as mobile. So maybe on the whole it, it evens out, but there are physical advantages that Gobert has over Duncan. Whereas in the Draymond KG argument, Draymond, I mean KG on defense can do probably everything that Draymond can do but he's eight inches taller, you know, <laughs> or, or something stupid. I don't know how tall Draymond is, but it's like he's six to seven inches lo- taller with right. much longer arms. So, yeah, I think he would be Draymond. Well, they're, they're, not much, they're not much Megatron. longer. Draymond's w- wingspan <laughs> is, is ridiculous. His um, wingspan is ridiculous for a guy that's 6'6". KG's wingspan was ridiculous for a guy who's 6'13". Oh, can, so, we, <laughs> can we measure it? Can we? I, I actually want to know Duncan's wingspan more than Garnett's. I think Duncan... I think Duncan must have like a seven, at least a seven five, seven six, yeah, something yeah. in that range. It's just ridiculous. And he also had high shoulders, which which would help with yes. like, like a standing yes. reach. You yep. know, Duncan was built to swim. You mentioned Michael Phelps; he was a yep. swimmer in, before he came to America. Yep. <sighs> Anything else you want to? I mean, you want to talk about their childhood? Anything else we can <laughs> mention with these two guys? Yeah, I mean, we we've gone in depth, and it's it's, it's been wonderful. I think that they are two of the best players in history. I am not one that really loves the concept of a a goat because I feel like across eras, then it just becomes something we can, I mean, you know, barbershop argue about, but I don't truly in my mind have a, this is my goat. This is my top four. Um, But I think that both Duncan and Garnett have a very legitimate argument to be on anyone's uh, basketball Mount Rushmore. And I think the fact that if you said that for Duncan, most casual fans wouldn't necessarily agree, but would at least hear you out. Whereas if you said it for Garnett, most casual fans would laugh you out the room. I think that's a tragedy. But I think both players were that good. Yeah, and to that point, I've always my, my take on this has been you gotta you gotta actually look at these guys and show me where they're significantly different because mm-hmm. I think they were so similar. They went back and forth winning you know player of the month awards just eating them up even when Shaq and Kobe and Dirk were in the league they um in the MVP voting it was like Garnett was right there then you have Peak Duncan Garnett almost beats Peak Duncan then Garnett sweeps in 2004 and so much changed by virtue of everything that happened in Minnesota kind of coming home to roost versus at the exact same time Manu Ginobili and Tony Parker coming from the heavens of Europe (laughs) <laughs> to completely, you know, just like, what did they get out of that? Another 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, Andre, thanks so much for doing this. Thanks for having this me. Was, this has been a ball. Yeah, I hope it was as fun for you as it was for me. Um, anything you want to plug, let people know anything you got going on 
over at the Worldwide Leader. <laughs> Definitely. The, the new so, book. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. My new book, 10 Steps, available in stores. Um, so, yeah, obviously I'm at ESPN. Um, I, I do uh, NBA writing and fantasy basketball writing. Uh, check me out at .com on the, the, the fantasy site or the, the NBA site. Um, I have an article called uh, Buy or Sell. I also work on the power rankings. I've got a new thing I've been doing called the Hoops Lab where I, I make a video in conjunction with the fantasy uh, basketball article. Runs on Fridays. Um, you know, uh, take a look for that again on the Wh- fantasy page. Where Where is that video? That That is on, on ESPN.com's fantasy page. Got it. Um, and even more specifically, you could go to the fantasy basketball within fantasy. Uh, those videos are there. I've, I've done about five or six of them now, and uh, we're, we're starting to kind of explore more. And that and that Hoops Lab is an homage to your your old life, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, yeah, I, I, the, the Hoops Lab was the name of the first basketball article that I ever ran. That's that's what it, um, I titled it. And then um, then yeah, when I started uh, my blog, I called it the Hoops Lab as well. If you want to support this podcast and get access to the statistics mentioned about Kevin Garnett and Tim Duncan during this episode, actually you can get it about any player since 1955, depending on what tier you sign up with, head over to patreon.com slash thinkingbasketball. It's a great way to support the show. We do have a live leaderboard with all proprietary stats that run throughout the season. There's a Thinking Basketball community where there's a lot of historical discussions like the one Andre and I had here today. And it's a great way to support the show. Another great way to support the show is wherever you listen, whether it's the Apple Store or Stitcher or Spotify, rate and review the podcast. That always helps with algorithms and things like that. Otherwise, thanks so much for listening all the way to the end. Look forward to the next episode in this series. I'll talk to you in the next podcast. And of course, I hope you are all having a great day.